Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is about Wong Kar Wai's 2000 film, In the Mood for Love. I think this is a really beautiful, timeless love story, but even more than that, I think it also engages with subjects like memory, nostalgia, longing, and loneliness, and so I'll be talking about all those things in my review. I really love this film, and I'm excited to talk about it for you. I hope that you'll stick around and listen to the full episode and everything that I have to say. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and also access rewards and extras. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. I'd like to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons, Tyler, Max, David, Juan, Iris, Teal, J.D., Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all for supporting Her Head in Films. You really make the podcast possible. If financial support isn't an option, and I definitely understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing Her Head in Films on iTunes and or Stitcher. If you write a review on iTunes, I will read it on a future episode of the podcast, and I'll leave out your name to protect your privacy. You can also tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films if you think that what I talk about might resonate with them, or you can just send me an encouraging message or comment or just interact with me in a positive way on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Her Head in Films, and you can see links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. So let's get started, and first I'm going to talk about what I've been watching. It's a new feature that I'm uh, adding to the podcast, and I hope that you'll like it. I'll just talk about some films that I recently saw, and then I'll talk all about In the Mood for Love. experiment a little bit with a new segment and I like to call it what I've been watching and I think it could be an additional space for me to talk about a few films that maybe you haven't heard of or maybe you have and just to expose you to some films that I've been watching I watch so many films that there's no way I can talk about all of them or write about all of them And the hardest part about doing the podcast is that I have to choose one film to focus on each week when I'm usually watching a film every day or every other day. So far for this month, August 2018, as I record this, I've watched around 18 films already. And there's no way 
that I can talk about all of them. But I would like to just let you know some things that I've seen, things that I think are really good, and just let you know my interests at a particular time in my life and the things that are very compelling to me and that are fascinating to me and that I am just personally exploring. And the films that I watch, they can change by the week. Sometimes I try to stick to a theme or sometimes I am watching films from a particular country it's sort of haphazard in a way, and I like to be intuitive about it. I just kind of watch things that interest me. Um, but it can be really hard to choose what to focus on. And so I did want to do this little short segment and just talk about a few things that I've seen. So first of all, I want to talk a moment about television because I don't talk about that much. I really love British television. This is not something that I've really been able to explore much on the podcast. Although I did do an episode a while back about Broadchurch. And I included it in a discussion about male violence and things like that. And I paired it with the Netflix series The Keepers and the HBO series Big Little Lies. British television is just really comforting for me. I've been trying out a service here in the U.S. called BritBox, which has a lot of British television, and it's a subscription streaming service. And there's also Acorn TV, and so I've been trying both of them out, but I've been kind of into BritBox at the moment. And I found this show called Rosemary and Time, and it's so adorable. Um, I know I tend to talk about Art House here, but I, I would also like to talk about films or TV shows that are just pleasurable, you know, and that are just comforting and that bring joy into my life. You know, I'm not watching really dark existential Art House film all the time, although I do watch that a lot of the time. Um, and Rosemary in Time is obviously inspired from the Simon and Garfunkel song, Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time, um, you know, from that song. The title escapes me. Um, and that's actually the beginning uh, music of the show. But it's from the early 2000s. It's just about two women who are in their middle ages, you know, in who are middle-aged. And uh, one is a gardener. The other used to work for the police force, I think. And they just find themselves solving mysteries. It's, it's, um, it's a light show. It's sort of like Miss Marple, that kind of thing. It's not a really dark detective show or anything like that. Um, it ticks a lot of boxes off for me. You know, I love shows about older women. I love Miss Marple personally, especially Geraldine McEwen. That is my Miss Marple personally. Um, there's beautiful gardens because I love gardens. If any of you have listened to my episode about The Secret Garden by Agnieszka Holland, I have a soft spot for gardens. And so the show features that at times. And it's just, it's set in Britain, British TV, very comforting to me. And it's just really lovely and delightful. It's not anything to take seriously. It's not the best written show in the world. But it's something that at the end of the day, at night, I put on my tablet and I watch like an episode or two. 
and I just really enjoy it. Wanted to let you know about it. I've been exploring BritBox and Acorn TV because I love British TV and I really love British detective shows but also period dramas and so I've been kind of getting back into those. I don't really talk about them on this podcast but for me those are like comforting movies and shows for me. And I've been also exploring French cinema. I have a really big passion for it. And I've been watching a lot of French films. I got inspired by Bertrand Tavernier's My Journey Through French Cinema, a three-hour documentary where he talks about all kinds of French directors. Um, Actually, on Patreon, I did an extra episode for my patrons where I talked about the that documentary and talked about um, some French films that I've been watching but I want to briefly mention that I've been revisiting French poetic realism and it's sort of quickly becoming one of my favorite genres you know I love Jean Vigo's Let Alone I love um, Marcel Carnet and um, I've recently saw Port of Shadows And it's just a stunning film. Like Michelle Morgan's eyes are so hypnotic and mesmerizing. And it's about um, a man played by Jean Gabin who um, he deserts the, the army or whatever. He deserts the military and he finds himself at this port and he meets Michelle Morgan. And both of them are sort of lost souls Both of them are lonely. Both of them have very um, difficult experiences in life, especially her. She's sort of dealing with the disappearance of her lover and her godfather who is sexually interested in her. It's actually a dark sort of film. But the two of them meet and it's like they're these lost souls who sort of cling to each other. I definitely would like to do a full episode about it one day. And I would like to do more films about French, more episodes about French poetic realism. But I've really gotten interested in French cinema. It was the beginning of a lot of things for me when I discovered French cinema, like Francois Truffaut's The 400 Blows um, and Chris Marker's La Jete was a big film for me. Um, so. French cinema is what got me interested in art house film. That's what I first fell in love with. And so I've been trying to learn more about it. I've been acquiring some books about it too. And I would really love to explore these classic French films. And I definitely want to do episodes about it. I definitely want to talk about Jean-Pierre Melville and Jean Vigo and Jean Renoir and Marcel Carnet. So stay tuned. I'm I'm going to do it for you. I can only do, um, you know, one film a week. <laughs> so um, I definitely have plans to do it. But you know what? I don't want to do those films until I really feel like I'm educated about French cinema enough and the history and things like that. And so it's really important to me to to have my knowledge straight first and to learn more and to go deeper into this national cinema that I think is really extraordinary. But seeing Port of Shadows was, 
I mean, that's like one of the most important films I think that I've probably seen this year. And I have plans to see more Marcel Carnet. I've seen this. I've seen Le Jour Celeve. And I definitely have plans to see Children of Paradise. So um, this French cinema just really speaks to me, especially poetic realism. I have been also exploring the work of the director Joseph von Sternberg. Um, I recently got an old issue of Cahiers du Cinema from 1965, and if you want to see it, I haven't posted a lot of pictures of it yet on my official social media. I've just been waiting. I don't know. I don't have the best camera, and I did take some photos, but I just haven't felt like posting them yet and doing like a big post about it. But if you go to my Instagram, just look for Her Head in Films. I do have a story, an Instagram story, uh, highlighted on my page. And I have videos and I have pictures of that Cahiers du Cinema um, thing that I have. Um, I took photos and video when I first received it and was looking through it. Because it was a really big moment for me. It's from 1965 and it is dedicated to Joseph von Sternberg. And it's about his films, and Marlena Dietrich is on the cover. I actually haven't seen his films with Marlena yet, but I am exploring some of his silent films. And this past week, I watched The Docks of New York, and I also started Underworld. And so both of these films were sort of important to... I think Underworld is is one of the first films about a gangster. I think it's sort of was the the beginning of like this the genre of gangster films and I don't normally watch films about gangsters that's not a big interest of mine but um I'm just very interested in Joseph von Sternberg and I was very impressed by the docks of New York which came out in 1928 and I, I think I forgot to mention that Port of Shadows came out in 1938 so this is 10 years and this is um, a silent film um, and the docks of New York, just, it's about, um, this woman who jumps into, uh, jumps into the water, um, at the docks, I guess you could say, and she gets saved by this man, and it's about sort of their relationship with each other, but I would describe it as visual poetry, you know, this is, the thing about silent cinema that I find so compelling and that I have started to explore because I've been watching a lot more silent films and I've actually started a book about silent films. I started reading it. Um, what I find so intriguing about them is that they're, you know, it's obvious, but there's no sound. There's no dialogue. The films have to be told visually and the directors had to create this particular language. And yes, they had the title cards that could say things and sort of let you know what's going on in the narrative. But overall, it, the visual aspect was so central and that the story had to be told in this way. And I think it created a very poetic, cinematic language. And there are so many gorgeous moments in the docks of New York. Um, Betty Compson's in it, and she's absolutely stunning. And um, there's just so many images from that film embedded in my mind now. 
And if you follow me on Instagram, I posted some screenshots from it. There's just this gorgeous um, part at the end of the film where she's um, she's in the frame, but then it um, it sort of dissolves to the water that she had tried to drown herself in earlier in the film. And so you have the overlay of her and then the water on top of her. Like, I, I think it's called a dissolve or or something like that. I don't know the technical term. So you have both of them sort of fused together. So that's what I mean. There is this poetic language and, and just this beauty about these um, these films. So I, I had to mention Joseph von Sternberg because I've started to explore some of his cinema. And I definitely have plans to watch a few of his films with, with Marlena Dietrich. I'd like to see Morocco... I would like to see Shanghai Express. So I definitely have plans to watch those, but I just haven't gotten to it yet. Another film I saw this week that I was really impressed by was the Black Power Mixtape, 1967 to 1975. And this is a really fascinating, extraordinary documentary that consists of footage taken by Swedish journalists from 1967 to 1975 and it's when they were covering the rise of the black power movement and the black panthers in the united states and it features interviews with all kinds of different activists um and also like musicians and writers like erica badu is is in the film and some of the most powerful uh moments of the film feature angela davis when she was arrested and she went on trial and um and it shows footage of her from that time where she's talking about things and she has this really great monologue about violence um she actually grew up in Birmingham Alabama and she knew some of the little girls the four girls who were killed in a church bombing uh in Birmingham it's a very well known um incident you know violent uh incident that happened uh in the 1960s and she knew them and she was talking about how you know the black panthers or the black power movement gets accused of you know uh, promoting violence or believing in violence and she said she's talking about how you know here here is a people you know the black community that has had violence inflicted against it for centuries you know it's like how can you even say that? How can you even say that this community advocates violence when they are the ones who have endured violence and um, are now trying to fight for their rights and trying to resist um, the oppression that they're under? And so it's this really powerful scene in that film. The whole film is just very interesting. It captures a moment in time um, that is gone you know, and really shows how uh, the civil rights movement um, was not finished. And I think with the rise of Black Lives Matter, I think we're obviously seeing a renaissance and a resurgence in that kind of activism, which is central and, and essential and so important that that's happening now. But that documentary captures these activists' um at that time, you know, and they talk about all kinds of things. They talk about, you know, Malcolm X, they talk about 
Martin Luther King Jr. and the different approaches to civil rights, the different approaches to fighting for justice. And um, it's just, it's a really interesting documentary. I think it's like a good introduction to it. And obviously there are other documentaries and films out there about the Black Panthers and the Black Power movement. And I definitely want to watch some more. I know there's a documentary on Netflix. I know that Agnes Varda even did like a short 30 minute documentary about the Black Panthers. So, um, and there's recently been lots of documentaries connected to Black Lives Matter, including the one called Whose Streets, which is about um, that. And very recently, there's been a documentary about Trayvon Martin and his life. And that's on the Paramount Network. And I have that saved and I want to watch that really soon. So that documentary absolutely impressed me. And it also reminded me that I have more things to watch about this this subject, about social justice, you know, racial justice. That's something that is really important to me. And finally, I will stop. I didn't mean to go on this long about the things that I've been watching, but I watch a lot of stuff. Finally, there's this film called How Heavy This Hammer. And it's from 2015. It's a Canadian film. And I was really, really impressed with this film. It's it's about nothing and it's about everything. Uh, that's the only way I can describe it. It's basically about this middle-aged man and his complete disconnection from his family and how he is just sort of on autopilot and going through the motions of his life. He has two sons, he has a wife, and yet throughout the film, he's never really connected to them. Um, Mainly what he likes to do is sit in front of the computer and play video games every now and then, although it seems to be a daily occurrence. And yet when he is with his children or he is with his wife, he's often checked out. He's not connected to them in any way. But it, but he has these eruptions of violence at times. Like he's playing rugby one time and he, um, he hits one of the men really badly in the nose, almost like he breaks the, the nose. He's trying to teach, I think, one of or both of his sons some kind of sports thing. And he ends up like hitting his kid or throwing his kid on the ground and his kid starts to cry. But he's someone who is just constantly like a zombie walking through his life. He sleeps a lot. You know, he's not present. He's not present. He gets frustrated easily. He lashes out at people. Um, I can't explain it. This is the kind of film that I think it takes a lot of confidence to make. Because it's like a slice of life type film. You know, it's it's done in extreme close-up. And it's really about this this man who is not present in his life. And it's interesting to pair it with um, a book that I'm reading by Bell Hooks called The Will to Change, Masculinity, Men, and Love. Or it might be Men, Masculinity, and Love. Where she talks about masculinity and she talks about patriarchy. And I think this film sort of puts that on the screen in a way of looking at men looking at masculinity, looking at the way men are not able to show emotion, are not allowed to show emotion, have been socialized in a lot of ways to not show love, to not show affection, um, 
men who are isolated and alone and disconnected, you know, because that's really how they've been taught to be. And they've been taught that's what it means to be a man. And I think in this film, how heavy this hammer, we see that in this man, you know, of he's completely checked out. He's on autopilot in his own life. But to me, it was like a portrait of masculinity, of modern masculinity in a lot of ways. Um, I don't know, just the film really impressed me in a way that I didn't expect. So that's just a rundown of the few things that I've been watching. And I know it seems like a lot. Um, It's sort of interesting to go back and list it like that because it is a lot. But that's just sort of a snapshot of some of the things I'm interested in, you know, social justice documentaries, silent cinema, French cinema, and British television. So that's sort of my my interest right now in my life. So I hope it sort of gets you interested in a film maybe you didn't know about or is just sort of interesting to you. But um, I'll stop here and I will continue uh, talking about In the Mood for Love. It's not hard to fall in love with a film like In the Mood for Love. It's a beautiful film. I first saw it in 2012, and that was around the time that I started to get really interested in art house cinema. I actually date my um, my first uh, revelation, I think, with art house cinema. Much earlier, I saw The Passion of Joan of Arc, probably in my teens, But it wasn't really until 2011 when I was 21, 22, um, when I saw Chris Marker's La Jetée. And that year is like a before and after for me. When I saw that film, it was a revelation to me. It got me more interested in art house cinema. And I do have an episode about La Jetée. So I started to get really into foreign films, world cinema, art film, and Wong Kar Wai was definitely somebody that I did watch a bit of. I saw In the Mood for Love in 2012. And I have, a, I have really powerful memories of seeing it. And I have not seen it since then. So six years have passed since I saw this film. And for me sometimes, for me, films become memories in a way. There are certain films that I have very intense memories of seeing for the first time. And sometimes those memories are more important than the movies themselves. And I don't know if we talk enough about that, about how movies become memories, how they sort of infiltrate our memory and become memories themselves and, and become dreams and exist in this, in a state of, of the dream world or the unconscious and I know that sounds sort of crazy not crazy but I know that sort of sounds um maybe a little bit ridiculous when it comes out of me like that but I do think that films become part of our memories and and our dreams um and our subconscious I guess you could say that um we're never quite the same after we see certain films and in the mood for love is like that for me I definitely remember being sort of drunk on it after I saw it. Drunk on the colors, the textures, 
um, the emotional beauty of it. Um, it's just a really beautiful film. And it's just not hard to fall in love with it, you know. And everything combines in this film. You have the colors, you have the soundtrack. I I remember after I saw this film just listening to the soundtrack obsessively uh, for, for days. And um, I really love the score that's in it. Um, there's just such a beautiful style about it. And I've only seen two Wong Kar Wai films, which feels very criminal to me. I haven't explored him more, and I know that I should. And I've seen Chungking Express. That's the other uh, Wong Kar Wai film that I've seen. And that's a really gorgeous film, too, um, with the colors. And I I tend to have, like, a really soft spot for films from the 1990s, like cinema from that time period. I just, I love the way it looks. I love the aesthetics of it. But In the Mood for Love is a bit of a continuation or a loose sequel to an earlier film that uh, Wong Kar Wai did called Days of Being Wild. And then after In the Mood for Love, there's a film called 2046 that is a bit of a loose sequel to In the Mood for Love. So all three of these films are sort of interconnected, but I have not seen any of them. I'd love to see Days of Being Wild, 2046, um, Happy Together. I know I definitely need to watch more of his work. But for me, In the Mood for Love, which comes to us in 2000, just it's interesting that it comes to us at the beginning of, of this new century, of the 21st century, um, because I think it is one of his masterpieces. It's one of the films that he was already really famous before In the Mood for Love, but it was a very successful international film, and it did really well globally. And I think maybe it um, raised his stature even more, you know, even though he is so uh, well regarded as a director. And I want to say I do have one brief connection to Wong Kar Wai, which is kind of funny, and I wanted to share it. I'm on Twitter um, too much most of the time, and one day, um, Christopher Doyle followed me on Twitter. I don't know why, (laughs) and as you know, he works with Wong Kar Wai. He worked with him on In the Mood for Love um, for some of the film, and then another cinematographer was brought in. And he followed me on Twitter, and I followed him back, and then, um, like, a few days later or a week later, he unfollowed me, <laughs> which is fine. I, You know, it, I'm fine with it. I'm not upset about it or anything. I have a little bit of ego. Obviously, we all have ego, but I don't have that much ego. I am nobody to Christopher Doyle, and that's totally fine. But I thought it was kind of funny, and I wanted to share it with you. It's just, like, my brief little connection to Wong Kar Wai that somebody who worked with him followed me on Twitter that's like one of the craziest things on social media sometimes is how you can have these passing connections with people like there are some writers that follow me or or some celebrities who follow me and I'm like what is going on um you know I don't interact with them that much because I'm just too intimidated but um I just thought that was funny I don't care that he unfollowed me you know I'm I do not matter. I don't even know if this was at a time when I had started my podcast or anything, but I was posting film related stuff and, but it's totally okay. Um, but I just thought that was kind of funny to let you know that I had this brief little connection to Wong Kar Wai for like a week or two, right? Um, 
but I thought that was kind of neat. So I do want to give you a little bit of information about Wong Kar Wai and also about Hong Kong, which is where the the film In the Mood for Love is set. There's this really great in-depth profile of Wong Kar Wai on the site Senses of Cinema. I like to use them as a source of when I do research on directors because they have these profiles that they do of like almost every director who's ever lived, I think. And it gives you um, information about them. Now, this profile, I think, was written in the early 2000s. So it's probably not totally up to date. But it was written after In the Mood for Love. So I did want to share it and just um, just talk about it a bit. It was actually written in 2002. But it gives a lot of information about Hong Kong and about the setting of the film. And so I just wanted to briefly touch on it. It was written by Michelle Carey. And I'll definitely link to it in the show notes of the episode. So Michelle Carey writes that Wong Kar Wai belonged to the second new wave of Hong Kong filmmakers. Um, And that second new wave happened in the 1980s. It includes directors such as Eddie Fong, Stanley Kwan, Clara Law. And it's often seen as the continuation of the first as many of these directors worked as assistants to first wave directors. So there was a a first new wave of Hong Kong directors and then a second new wave came in the 1980s. And she talks a bit about Hong Kong's identity. And she writes that, quote, the identity of Hong Kong is perpetually marked by its closeness to the motherland China and its western link as a British colony. Yet in the face of its history, Hong Kong has duly created its own culturally specific identity, one that inevitably combines both elements of the West and mainland mainland China. The cinema of Hong Kong reflects this notion of a dual identity, combining to create a third localized identity. Significant in this respect is Hong Kong cinema's new wave movement, which rose to prominence in 1979. So Hong Kong sort of has this dual identity about it, like this sort of fusion of the, of the West and of China, and it makes it a very interesting place. And uh, she goes on further to talk about what, what Wong Kar Wai is known for and some of the things about his cinema that's really unique. Um, Because I've not seen a lot of his films, I'm certainly not an authority about that. But I will share some of why I love In the Mood for Love and some of the themes that come through for me. But she writes, quote, He works outside of the usual representational approaches that underpin classical narrative cinema and transcends artistic boundaries. Moments, questions, and answers are infinite for Wong as he attempts to charter the terrain of his lovelorn outsiders. Wong's status as a postmodern auteur sees him delve into moments that are linked to both history and the personal, whether directly or indirectly. Notions of identity and the ever-present fusion between East and West find context in the themes of love, loneliness, and alienation that pervade his protagonists. Tension between the past and present is linked to memory, desire, time, space, and environment, unquote. And I think In the Mood for Love is a great example of that. And I think what I love so much about the film is that it is about loneliness, desire, longing, um, 
isolation to a certain extent, sort of urban isolation, which I don't personally relate to, but I just relate to being isolated and lonely. Um, sort of that struggle to connect to other people, but also the the inability perhaps to be with the person that you want to be with, which is a really big part of this film. And I did want to touch a moment about the context of Hong Kong in the 1960s, where In the Mood for Love is set. And I think it's a really important thing. Uh, at the beginning of the film, there is a title card that reads, It is a Restless Moment, Hong Kong 1962. And so um, Michelle writes that, quote, This verse immediately triggers the mood of both the protagonists and the wider social environment. At this time in 1962, 13 years after Mao and the Communist Party's rise to power in mainland China, Hong Kong remained a British colony. However, during the 1960s, there was considerable unrest as a result of the wider social and political situation that was existing in the world. So, unquote, so this was an unstable time. And as the film goes on progressively, it starts in 1962, but it ends in 1966 at a more unstable time. And so that that's an important thing to note. And she also goes on to talk about a little bit of the connection with previous films. She writes, in both Days of Being Wild and In the Mood for Love, Wong recreates a 60s Hong Kong that is both nostalgic and contemporary, evoking both tradition and modernity. Significantly, the 60s era represents the childhood period of the directors of the second wave. Wong himself was five years old when he moved from Shanghai to Hong Kong. Thus, the recreation of this period is deeply nostalgic and sentimental in its theme of Hong Kong as home. Wong's portrait of 1960s Hong Kong is both retro and commodity conscious, with clear influences from the West and Japan. And I also liked this part, and this will probably be the last quote that I share. Um, she writes, quote, The sense of history and nostalgia that pervades in the mood for love is a signature of Wong's style and reminiscent of filmmakers such as Alain René, Jean-Luc Godard, and Christophe Kishlovsky. With history and nostalgia, however, come change and the notion of before and after. The protagonists are caught in a constantly evolving space where time can stand still or be momentarily captured, but will eventually succumb to expiration. The inevitability of change brings with it a nostalgia and reminiscence that often evoke melancholy. And I think that's why of all the Wong Kar Wai films that I've seen, although I've only seen two, I know. I think that's why this one um, resonates with me the most. And I don't know if I realized it at the time, how much it was engaging with nostalgia, how much it was engaging with a past that is gone with sort of a, a moment in time, a golden time in your life that has vanished and evaporated. And I, I think you can tell that the film is personal for Wong Kar Wai. And he says as much in interviews. There's, And he talks about how he really was trying to recreate a time in his childhood. And I've talked about in previous episodes, like Ingmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries in particular, um, I talk about how I sort of worship my childhood, how I'm someone who's very nostalgic, who's very obsessed with the past, 
who's haunted by the past, who sort of longs to recapture that time in my life because things really fell apart for me when I was like 16 years old. And that's when my father died. And it's the before and after of my life. And it's, you know, it's the great trauma of my life up to this point. And I think a lot about my life before his death, you know. And so I think about when I was very young or in my preteens, which were around the 1990s. And so the 1990s, the early 2000s. And so the that time in my life is incredibly intense and overpowering in my memories. And, um, and it's also a time that I continuously go back to through art. I try to re-experience the 90s, I guess you could say, through music videos, through... Um, movies even through books I've I've made a list on Goodreads of like books that were written in the 1990s and and so I, I I try to read some of them every now and then when I sort of feel like in that mood so um so this film and its themes of loneliness and longing and nostalgia um on top of the the theme of you know lost love and you know unrequited love two people who can't be together that really resonates with me personally and then you add on the beautiful saturation of these colors and and just I don't know just the look of the film and it's just it's intoxicating to watch in the mood for love it's a it there's a sensuality to it as well that I really love So now I'm going to talk about the film itself. And it stars Maggie Chung as uh, a woman named Mrs. Mrs. Chan. And I'm going to go by the names that the characters are called in the film. She's called Mrs. Chan. And uh, Tony Leung plays Mr. Chow. And so both of them are married to other people. Um... The film begins in Hong Kong in 1962, like I said earlier. And they're actually moving into an apartment building at the same time. And they sort of interact with each other at first, but not much. Some of their stuff gets mixed up by the movers because they're moving in on the first day. They exchange a few words, but it's not much. And her husband is away. And a big part of the film is the way that Mrs. Chan's husband is always away that he's always on business usually in Japan and Mr. Chow's wife is often away she she works a lot she works late at night so she says and um so these are two people who are married obviously but they're very lonely in their lives and when I, it's interesting that I watched this film right after another film that I saw and did an episode about called Brief Encounter. It's a film by David Lane and it's from 1945 and it's the episode I did before this one. And if you want to listen to it, you certainly can. But there's a lot of similarities between these two films that I don't think I noticed um, when I first saw In the Mood for Love. And I'm not saying Wong Kar Wai was necessarily... Um, inspired by Brief Encounter, but I do think that there is, um, it's sort of an interesting thing, uh, some of the similarities, which mainly is about two people who are married uh, to other people who sort of fall in love with each other and are not able to consummate that relationship or be together. Um, 
So there's a bit of similarity there. And in an interview, Wong Kar Wai talked about how he wasn't interesting and ma- he wasn't interested in making a film about an affair. I mean, I guess he easily could have. He could have done, you know, a steamy erotic film, right, about these two people having an affair. That didn't interest him. I think he was more interested in creating 1960s Hong Kong, and I think he was much more interested in exploring longing and unfulfilled desire and the mores of that time period, too, because automatically when you set something in the past like that, in the 60s or in the 50s and 40s, there is there are different social conventions of that time where people didn't always engage in affairs. They felt... Um, they felt this uh, pressure in society, you know, not to transgress and, you know, gossip could be caused and, you know, all kinds of things could happen because of it. So um, nowadays, people might be a little bit more willing to cheat. You know, they, they don't have maybe that longing, that unfulfilled longing, the way that you get in some of these films that are set in the past, where people really did have a moral quandary and they had issues with cheating you know it was it was a moral thing that they struggled with and that's what brief encounter explores as well and so Wong Kar Wai makes it so that these people even though they're falling in love with each other they never consummate that love it remains platonic it remains um very emotional and intimate though and I can't go on without talking about Maggie in this film she gives a spectacular performance and a beautiful part of this film is the fashion and I think one of the things that made me so intoxicated by this film when I first saw it was Maggie's dresses and her and her fashion she's incredibly elegant and chic in this film you can't take your eyes off of her but the dresses are so beautifully patterned like If I looked like Maggie, that's how I would dress all the time. I would be wearing those dresses, beautiful florals and uh, just gorgeous uh, dresses that she wears. And um, the colors of this film really do wash over you. And you're, you're very mesmerized by every frame of the film, by the lighting, the colors, um, this world that Wong Kar Wai creates for us. Um, He does such a spectacular job of evoking that time period. And of course, these colors that drench the film, I think, make it even more nostalgic. That even even if Hong Kong in the 1960s didn't necessarily look like the way that he recreates it, it still, it has this feeling of nostalgia already about the film. It just has that feel to it. And the music starts very early in the film, um, and it's so gorgeous. And like I said, I was obsessed with the soundtrack, obsessed with the song that that plays throughout the film. And something interesting about this film um, is that we never see Mrs. Chan's and Mr. Chow's spouses. We only see them, like, from behind. We never see their faces. Sometimes we hear their voices, Um I don't think Wong Kar Wai was really interested in showing them because it was always about Mrs. Chan and Mr. Chow and about their relationship to each other. Something that struck me about the film as I was watching it is the loneliness of Mrs. Chan and Mr. Chow that even though they are married to other people, um, they don't, because their spouses are gone so much, they don't have much of a connection to them. 
And even with the people who are around them in the apartment building, they really don't interact or socialize all that much. There's a distance and a loneliness about both of them. And I think that loneliness is evoked even more in the film when we see Mrs. Chan and Mr. Chow often alone in within interiors or even in alleyways and stuff like that. Like an image that comes to me is like Mr. Chow at work and he's like at his desk and nobody's around and he's just sitting there smoking and staring into space. Um, Maggie, you know, in her apartment alone because her husband is gone um, or going to get noodles. She likes to go and get noodles a lot. And so she walks down like these empty streets, down these alleyways. Um, the film has a lot of corridors and hallways and alleys um, and interior rooms as well. And I, I think personally that that evokes a sense of loneliness. So pretty early in the film, I think, we we finally realize that um, Mrs. Chan and Mr. Chow's spouses are actually cheating with each other. Um, and that comes when Mrs. Chan goes to Mr. Chow's apartment and um, Mrs. Chow comes to the door. And in that moment, it seems to me like Mrs. Chan wants somebody to talk to. Like, she seems like... She wants some kind of connection, but Mrs. Chow is not interested in talking, and she shuts the door. And after she shuts the door, she says, it was your wife. And so we immediately realize that they are having an affair with each other. And Mr. Chow, one of his friends, tells him that he saw his wife out with another man. Um, And so it it becomes clear over the course of the film that there is um, there is an affair going on. And the two of them, Mrs. Chan, Mr. Chow, they figure it out when they go out to dinner together. And both of their spouses are away. And they realize that their spouses have items that only they could get from one another. So, um, you know, Mrs. Chan's husband goes to Japan a lot. And she realizes that... Um, that the spouses have items that only they could get for each other. And so they realize that the that their spouses are having an affair. And what happens after this is very um, unexpected in that what they start to do is together they start to imagine how this affair started. And they start to um, play the role of each other's spouses imagining how the affair began, imagining the things that they might say to each other. Um, so Ma- so Maggie, you know, Mrs. Chan, she pretends to be Mrs. Chow. And then Mr. Chow pretends to be Mr. Chan, you know, uh, Mrs. Chan's husband. And it's, I don't know if I even remembered this part because it was six years ago. And I was like, that is very compelling. This idea of them trying to reenact the way their spouses have cheated on them. Um, But that's what they do. They even like try to eat like one another's spouses. You know, Mrs. Chan eats a dish that Mrs. Chow uh, would have eaten. They talk to each other the way the, the spouses would have. Almost recreating... Um, their absent spouses in a way which I don't know if I have anything deep to say about it 
but it's like this role playing. It's like this acting that they're trying to do. And maybe through inhabiting these characters, you know, turning themselves into characters, maybe they're able to say things or feel things that they wouldn't normally allow themselves to say and to feel. It kind of gives them a shield in a way, or it gives them a cover, you know. And in the process of doing this, they actually start to fall in love with each other because they're spending more time together. You know, both of them feel like outsiders to me. Both of them feel like misfits. And they don't socialize a lot with other people. They don't have a lot of friends. There is... um there's like this disconnection, you know, that they have within this community within Hong Kong. I mean, it's never really stated why they would be outsiders, why they would feel that way. But I think some of us just sort of live with a sense of of not fitting into the world where we are, you know, and I feel that all the time, you know, living in the rural South and you know, being someone who's very liberal and progressive and who loves culture and art, you know, I don't have access to things like that. Um, I have really struggled to find people who share my interests or share my passions. And I was just thinking recently, if I had friends, if I had like a robust social life, I probably wouldn't have this podcast and I probably wouldn't be on social media as much as I am. My only real outlet in this world at this at this time in my life is this podcast and social media. And so it it takes on an exaggerated importance in my life. You know, to other people, this is just a podcast. This is just a film podcast. Um, but to me, it's like a lifeline. To me, it's um, it's a way to have a voice. It's a way to be able to say something, to share what I feel, to share what I think, and to have people actually care about it and listen. Because I have gotten some really nice messages from people. And I love thinking, I love knowing that maybe I'm affecting people in some way, or maybe I'm heard, you know. So to other people, it doesn't seem like a lot. But to me, it's become a big part of my life. And the same thing with social media. I think a lot of people just perform and pretend and are disingenuous and fake and are just trying to say funny things, you know. And to me, it's much more serious than that. It's like an outlet for me to share what I'm reading, what I'm watching, what I'm passionate about, what I'm thinking about what I'm feeling and experiencing, you know, I don't share everything. But, you know, on Twitter, Instagram, places like that, I feel more myself online. That's what's so strange is like, I think most people are very performative online, you know, and they feel like they're curating their life and only showing the best moments and things like that. And I feel like I'm more authentic online. And because that's all I have, you know, that's, I can't really be myself in everyday life. So the only place I can be myself or share some of myself is online or is through this podcast. It's why I'll always be open about things. And I'll always talk about mental illness and grief and depression is because I think that hearing someone talk about those things and hearing a voice discuss issues that are often very private and secret. I think 
showing that it can be very powerful to other people and they can feel seen and they can feel less alone and so that's what I try to do here you know but in my everyday life I do feel really lonely and I do feel really disconnected and I don't know what to do about it um so I I do have an affinity <clears throat> for characters who <clears throat> I do have an affinity for characters who don't fit in who feel disconnected, who feel lonely and isolated. And I definitely got that sense about Mrs. Chan and Mr. Chow, you know. And I do think at first that play acting is is maybe a way to express feelings that they're having or a way to feel the absence that is in their life because their spouses are gone and maybe they're substitutes for each other you know that her husband isn't there and his wife isn't there but they're there for each other if that makes any sense and so I think really they at first they're connecting through that shared absence through that shared heartache that these people that they love that they have married are cheating on them and you feel the pain of that in them, I think. Um, and because they have nobody else, they have each other and they turn to each other and they find some kind of solace in each other's company. But they have to be very careful about the time that they spend together. But at one time, but eventually their roles start to mix with real life that no longer are they playing these characters anymore. They are just themselves having real feelings for each other and at one time he does try to hold her hand and she pulls it away it's while they're sitting in a car um and I really like this exchange later on one night they're talking and Mr. Chow vocalizes the thought of like who he would be if he hadn't married and Mrs. Chan talks about how complicated marriage is she says that you know when you're single you're only responsible for yourself and that marriage complicates those things. And you do wonder, you know, if both of them were single, um, obviously they could probably be together. But things conspire to keep them apart. And that is how I felt with Brief Encounter. It's about these two people, Laura and Alec, and they meet at a train station when he gets a piece of grit out of her eye. And over the course of their different meetings, they fall in love with each other, but they never consummate that relationship and they never have sex, just like in in the mood for love. Um, but there is this sense that if they hadn't met their spouses, if if they had met each other sooner, you know, what kind of, what could their lives have been like? And I think that's something that you're haunted by for within the mood for love is if Mrs. Chan and Mr. Chow had met earlier before they got married Maybe they could have had a relationship. And you do have the sense that for the rest of their lives, they will think about each other and they will wonder what could have been and what kind of relationship they could have had. And I just love the small moments of intimacy between them. Um, the film is very subtle. You have to pay attention to details. You have to pay attention to the way they walk. You have to pay attention to what they do with their hands. You have to pay attention to their eyes and their facial expressions. Um, there's just so many intimate moments like, you know, when they're eating together and um, when she brings him sesame syrup when he's not feeling well. Um, just a little gesture like that. 
Um, they just have these beautiful moments of intimacy together. And he's writing a martial arts book. He, I guess he wants to be a writer. It's not his day job. And he asks her to write it with him or to at least go over it with him and give her feedback. And she agrees to do that. And so this is just another way that they can connect with each other. You know, is through is through that. When they're together, it's really the only times in the film when they're not alone. When they're apart, they're very alone. They're walking the streets alone. You know, like when she goes to get the noodles that she loves. Or when Mr. Chow is in his office or Mrs. Chen is in her apartment alone. They're so often isolated. But then when they're together, there's this sense of really freedom and intimacy and happiness like and joy. Like when they're going over the martial arts book together and, and all of that. Or they're eating dinner together. And um, that's a really beautiful part of the film is that it's about these lonely souls who have sort of found each other and connected. But of course the tragedy and, and the heartbreak is that they can't really be together. And we're reminded though that they have to be very careful about their relationship um, when she comes over one, one day or one night to his apartment to look at the martial arts book and all of a sudden the neighbors show up because the way the apartments are set up, it's like when they go out of their apartment, other people can see them. It's like a shared sort of space. Um, and so right outside of his bedroom is like all these people playing a game together. So she can't leave because if she comes out of his bedroom, that's going to look really improper. And so she ends up having to stay all night. And like the next day she has to like um, take work off. But they are so obsessed with not, um, with not doing anything that could trigger gossip. Or that can make it look like something's happening between them. They're very conscious of the social conventions. And what is expected of them at this time period. Whereas their spouses don't really care, obviously. I mean, they keep it quiet. But um, Mrs. Chan and Mr. Chow are much more, um, much more proper, you know. And, and that matters to them. It matters to, to her, especially Mrs. Chan that they do not become like their spouses, that they do not have sex, that they don't go that far and they don't cheat. It's something that she wants to hold on to. And that's also similar with Brief Encounter, that in Brief Encounter, it's Laura, it's the woman insisting that it not cross a line, that they not um, do that because it could compromise them and compromise their morality, and, and compromise their standing, you know, if it was to get out, if the gossip was to start, what could that do to their reputations? So I got a similar sense in, in the mood for love, especially with Mrs. Chan, that she she doesn't want to do that. She It's very important to her that they not act like their spouses, and that they not cross that line. But after that incident, Mr. Chow goes to a hotel or he rents a hotel or something like that. And so when they do see each other, they go to this hotel and he calls her to come to the room. And at first, um, she goes, she goes up the stairs, but at first she's going to leave. She doesn't think that she can go through with it and actually go to his room. And I would imagine that it feels sort of illicit to her or wrong, 
Um, but she does go to the room and I, I think they, I, nothing happens. I think they probably just go over the martial arts book or, or they talk or something like that. Um, but this is the scene when, when she's leaving, he says that he didn't think that she would come. And she says that they won't be like them, their spouses, meaning they won't cheat. They won't cross that line, even though they do want to. So that's the scene where she really articulates that we are not going to, to take it there. And I love the quiet moments in this film and the senses of cinema article, um, alluded to that, you know, that, um, the film is made up of these moments, these quiet moments that really convey a sense of interiority of the characters of inner emotion. This is not a film about erupting emotions or, or explosions or expressions really of emotion all that much. It's really underneath, um, it's, this inner um, emotion that is under the surface. That's another similarity to Brief Encounter. I, I'm sorry if I'm bringing up Brief Encounter so much, but last week I watched it. And so to me, I'm thinking about how these films interact with each other in a way, even though they were made, you know, 50, more than 50 years apart. Um, but they're set within very similar decades, you know, uh, Brief Encounter is set in 1938, and this film's set in the 1960s. Um, but that's another similarity is characters with a great deal of inner emotion that they can't really show. Um, so there's just these moments like Mrs. Chan standing at a window. She's drinking from a glass, and she's looking into space with such longing and, you know, Mr. Chow at work looking into the distance as he smokes. Um, there's this sense that they're always thinking about each other, even though they can't say it. And their play acting sort of continues when they do this rehearsal of him leaving. Um, but as the scene goes on, we don't know that it's a rehearsal until the end. He says that he has to leave, that she won't leave her husband, and he's fallen in love with her. And at the end, they hold hands for a moment, and then... He takes his hand away and her free hand travels up her arm. It's this very um, intense moment. You know, like they don't touch each other often. Sometimes they're sitting in the back of, of a car or sometimes they're near each other. But very rarely do they hold hands or have any kind of intimacy with each other. And even though it's a rehearsal and she knows that he is not leaving right then, um she's really grief stricken and and one it's one of the few times she touches him and and she uh she cries into his arms um and he's holding her and so it's it's one of the few moments of intimacy between the two of them and you can tell that their relationship means something to her that having him around you know interacting with him talking to him being around him is like life-saving for her. You know, like, what if what if their spouses had been cheating and the two of them had never connected? They'd never really talked to each other. They'd never uh, forged a relationship. Where would they be? Because they would know that their spouses are cheating. They would be alone in Hong Kong. Their spouses would often be away. What would their life be like if they hadn't met each other? So they're like lifelines for each other. 
you know, and people can be like that for us, that people can come along in our lives when we need them the most. I mean, it hasn't happened to me that much, but I know that it happens to other people, you know, where the right person comes along right when they need them. But eventually it's not a rehearsal anymore and he does leave. And we see Mrs. Chan in that hotel room where they used to go. And there's just this tear running down her face. And we know that he has left. And it flash forwards to 1963 in Singapore. And this is a really important scene in the film. He's with a friend and he's alone. I got the sense that he left Mrs. Chow. That he's single now. Um, I don't know if that's the full story. But we never see the wife around. We never see her mentioned. And so perhaps he just left. And he, he went to Singapore. But he's he's talking to a friend. And he tells him that in the old days. If someone had a secret. They'd go up a mountain. They'd find a tree. They'd carve a hole in the tree. And they would whisper the secret into the hole. And then fill the hole with mud. Um, and that'll... That's really important to the ending, which I'll get to in a mo- in a moment. And I another scene that I love is when Mrs. Chan is in Mr. Chow's old apartment in Hong Kong. And we see her and she's lying on the bed. She's smoking the cigarettes that are there. She's touching his things because she can no longer touch him. And there's such a sense of longing there in that one scene and at one point she calls him in Singapore we're not sure how she knows his number maybe he left it for her but she doesn't say anything and the line just stays silent between them but even though there is so much distance between the two of them the thread that connected them is not broken it doesn't feel broken to me at all and like I said I think these are two people who will always feel some kind of connection with each other um, and in that way, it's sort of a timeless love story. It's like a love story for the ages. Even though these two people can't be together, they shared this relationship. They shared this connection with each other and sort of helped each other through a really difficult time, which was their spouses cheating on them. So it flash forwards again to Hong Kong, 1966, and this is an unstable time. Um, A lot of people in 1966 have left Hong Kong. They're going other places. Um, There's definitely this sense that things have really, really changed. And Mrs. Chan goes back to the old apartment building where she used to live in 1962, where she knew Mr. Chow. The woman who owns it is going to sell it. And Mrs. Chan asks about that and, and is considering maybe buying it from her. And so she's standing at the window and the woman that owns the apartment is just talking, you know, talking about how it was in the past back when Mrs. Chan was living there in 1962. And Maggie playing Mrs. Chan, her eyes start to water. I mean, it's just this gorgeous scene. Like, I can't even put it into words. I would, I would argue about this film that this is a really hard film to talk about. I would argue that because of the visual style of it, the way that it evokes longing and nostalgia and these unspeakable things that sort of seethe under the surface of our lives, 
that it's very difficult to talk about it. And I didn't know if I could, um, but I wanted to. I've loved this film for a long time. I will say, though, that watching it the first time was much more intense than watching it a second time. I think maybe this is one of those films where the first time will always be the best. I mean, that's just my personal feeling. Some of you may probably disagree and think I'm very wrong in saying that. Maybe it was just the state of mind I was in recently. I've just been struggling lately and feeling very tired and, you know, um, just feeling sad and... um, I don't, I don't know if my mental health is really great right now, personally. Um, but watching it again, I don't know if I felt as intoxicated by it. But the first time I saw it, I did. And I remember, like, crying at the end. Like, my eyes watered up that first time. And this time, that didn't happen. Maybe because I knew what was going to happen. You know, I knew what was coming. It just didn't, I don't know if it had the same effect the second time. That doesn't mean I don't love the film. But I just want to be honest about that. And it could be just the state of mind I'm in right now. Sometimes films hit us at certain times in our lives. And sometimes we revisit them and they don't quite affect us in the same way. You know, I'm a a different person than I was six years ago in 2012. Um, A lot has happened in my life in just those six years. And so I just think I'm in a different headspace, I guess you could say. But I still love the film. But I do think it's one of those films that I think maybe the first time is incredibly intense and overwhelming. Because really, I think it was my first Wong Kar Wai. I had never seen a film that looked like this. I saw Chungking Express later. I saw it a few years later. So this was the first time I was soaking up these colors and these textures and and this feeling that he evokes of nostalgia and just the beauty of his cinema. And um, so the memory of seeing it for the first time is just still imprinted on my brain, you know. And listening to the soundtrack and, and all of that was just incredibly powerful for me. But this scene of Mrs. Chan standing at that window and, you know, the woman saying, um, you know, it was so nice then, wasn't it? That's what the woman asks. And Mrs. Chan responds, yes. And you and you know that she's thinking about Mr. Chow, that she's looking out that window and thinking of him, thinking about what they shared. Um, there's such a sense of nostalgia for a beautiful time that is gone and over and lost. And I think that might be one of the biggest accomplishments of this film. This is what Wong Kar Wai captures, really, is that in trying to recreate his childhood, you know, he... um, He's trying to recreate... That's what makes the film so personal, is he's trying to recreate this time that is very intense for him. You know, because our childhoods are very intense, I know that mine are. I know that I remember places and things and all of it's gone. Just like Hong Kong in the early 1960s. That time is gone. Wong Kar Wai's childhood is gone and the world he inhabited as a child has vanished. And that is the fate of all of us to have to deal with. Just like Isak Borg in Ingmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries. This character, Isak Borg, 
goes back to the summer house where he was a child and remembers the people who were there and sort of conjures them, you know. Um, they no longer are there, but the house is there, the grounds are there, and he walks around, and he's in that environment again, inhabiting this space of memory, and remembering these lost things, you know, this vanished time that no longer exists anymore, except inside his mind. That's what makes Wild Strawberry so resonant for me, um, and possibly for a lot of others too. And so within the mood for love, it's a romantic story. It's about love, but it's also about these characters who can never recapture a specific time in their lives and how for the rest of their lives, they'll probably ache for it. And they'll probably stand at windows and think about it and their eyes will well up. And God, that's just heartbreaking, but it's so real and it's so, I think it's, I think it's a universal thing. You know, I don't say that a lot of stuff's universal, but I think the loss of our childhoods, you know, thinking about that, those times in our lives when we were happy and that have vanished, I think that's pretty universal. And I think that's a really powerful part of this film of um, these characters thinking about not just a, a time in their lives, but a time in their, their environment that was more stable because it's 1966 and things are a bit tumultuous in Hong Kong at that time. And, and in 1962, it was a bit different. You know, it was a bit more ideal. It was a bit more stable. And so in this country, you know, in this territory, things have changed. That time is gone. There's a new reality that people have to live with and they ha that they have to face. And I think my nostalgia for the 1990s is connected to politics as well, in a way, because this is a pre-9-11 time. And I know that the 1990s had their issues. I know that the 1980s had issues with Reagan in power. I totally understand that. I would never try to idealize those decades. But I think there is an argument to be made that things were very different before 9-11. 9-11 brings... The war in Iraq, the invasion of Iraq, a criminal act, in my opinion, that never should have happened, that brings about the death of hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, that brings about the destruction of a nation and the destabilization of an entire region and the demonization of Muslims and people of Middle Eastern origin and descent. That is what comes in a post-9-11 world. Those planes hit those towers. That plane went into that field in Pennsylvania. That plane went into the Pentagon. And the world changed. It was like a seismic shift, an earthquake, in terms of what happened here in the United States. And I grew up in the Bush years. And for anybody to say they are nostalgic for those years shocks me. They weren't that long ago. They weren't that long ago. Um, we have a war ongoing in Iraq, in Afghanistan. So many people have died and suffered in the Middle East, in the regions we've invaded. Um, so the 1990s, I get a little nostalgic, yeah, because it's before all of that. It's before this death, this destruction, this in terrible imperialism. But of course, I have to face that. My country's been doing this for decades. And I know that. Um, America is one of the most violent countries, if not the most violent country on the face of the planet. 
and the level of destruction that we have done is mind-blowing. Um, and it just horrifies me. Like, every president has been complicit in it. Um, but yeah. So, yeah, the 1990s, I'm a little bit nostalgic because it's pre-9-11. And it's before so much destruction and pain and violence. And, yeah, you know. So it is tied to politics to a certain extent, just like, you know, in this film. It's not an overtly political film, but there is this sense that this instability is affecting these characters as well. The instability in the region and that 1962 or or that time in their life had a little bit more stability. I didn't mean to go on a tangent there, but I have very strong feelings about it. Um, So it's more chaotic, you know. And, of course, she longs for Mr. Chow. And then, eventually, Mr. Chow returns to the same apartment later on. And none of the former people live there anymore. He stops, of course, at the door of Mrs. Chan's apartment, thinking about what they shared, what they talked about, who they were. He's told a woman lives there with a child, but he doesn't know that it's Mrs. Chan, that now she has a kid and she still lives in that apartment. Um, and then a title card appears and says that era has passed. Nothing that belonged to it exists anymore. And that's heartbreaking. That's really heartbreaking to think about your childhood, to think about those times and to realize that it is gone, that whatever you remember in the nineties or the early two thousands or whatever it's gone and it's like, how do you live in the present? How do you create your life now? How do you make it enough? That's what I struggle with on a daily basis is that I have to consciously tell myself, you know what, Caitlin, you were in a lot of pain in the 90s too. You know, painful things happened to you in your childhood, you know, because they did. But we tend to only remember the good things, you know, we, we have that nostalgia in us. But I have to remind myself now is good too that there are good things happening to you now and I have to consciously put myself in the present but it's hard it's really hard you know to not want to go back to that time when my father was alive and to have that life back again it's like god if there was a time machine I'd probably be the first one in it I'm like that that things were so different back then and so the film ends in 1966 with Mr. Chow in Cambodia. He's at um, an ancient site there that has lots of ruins. And um, he finds a hole in, the, in a stone there in one of the ruins. And he starts to speak into it. And I remember when I saw this in 2012, like crying over this scene of him speaking into the stone. Because it goes back to that story he told at the beginning that people who have secrets... You know, they go to this mountain, they find a tree, they carve a hole in the tree and they tell their secret to the tree and then fill it with mud. And so then the tree holds the secret. And of course, for years, he's been carrying around his secret, you know, his secret love for Mrs. Chan. And so now he is telling that secret to these ancient stones, telling the secret that he carries with him, the secret that really defines him 
And then, of course, he plugs the hole with, like, some straw or some kind of mud. But I don't think that he has left that secret behind. I don't think he's left those feelings behind. I mean, maybe it's an attempt of his to try to let it go. To try to let her go. But I don't have the sense that that's possible. And again, I'm going to bring up Brief Encounter. I'm sorry if I upset any of you with this. But that film is Laura confessing her relationship and her love for Alec that she's had for the last few weeks. She's telling it in her mind to her husband. So it's a sort of confession that she's doing, but she never tells her husband. And I think what Mr. Chow's doing is something similar. It's like a confession, but he's speaking to this stone and he's unloading it and expressing it to this stone um, instead of to a person. But I have the sense, just as I did with Laura, that he will always think about Mrs. Chan, that he will always wonder what could have been, like, if they could have been together, if they could have consummated the relationship, because it's this unfulfilled desire, too, that he wanted to be with her, and I'm sure she wanted to be with him, and they never were. And so it will always be this thing in his mind that he never had, um, and that sort of slipped away and has vanished now. And um, I, I imagine it'll stay with him forever. And it will always haunt him to some extent. Um, but I don't know why him speaking to that stone just moved me so much. It really did. And I really was moved by the end. The title cards that appear. And they say, quote, He remembers those vanished years. As though looking through a dusty window pane. The past is something he could see, but not touch. And everything he sees is blurred and indistinct. Unquote. That's a, that's a beautiful ending. Like, that's so poetic, and I still remember that. Um, so, this is a film that I think deeply engages with memory and with the past, with nostalgia and what is lost. And I think that even if you are not from Hong Kong... And you have no connection to Hong Kong. I don't. I'm very far away from Hong Kong. Um, I live in the rural south in the United States. But this film touched me. And it has something to say both about Hong Kong. It's It's a very specific story. And I would never want to erase that. I will never erase that. I don't like when... Uh, people try to universalize films or stories because it's very important to acknowledge our different cultures, our different upbringings, our different experiences in the world. We should never try to erase difference. Difference is the richness of life, I think. Um, You can learn things from those differences. So this is a very specific story. It's a personal story for Wong Kar Wai thinking about his childhood. I think he sort of shares that with Ingmar Bergman a bit, that Bergman often went back to his childhood for stories, like Summer Interlude, which was about a love affair, um, a love affair that he had with a girl, or even with Fanny and, and Alexander, where he's going back into his childhood. So he shares that um, with Bergman as well, and the Senses of Cinema article mentioned Christoph Kisch- Christoph Kishlovsky, 
who also engages with nostalgia and memory and Alain Rene, of course. But um, so this film is profoundly personal in that way, that it is about Wong Kar Wai recreating this time in his own childhood and maybe by putting it on film, trying to preserve it. And I think sometimes those of us who are cinephiles, I think we like to think that film can preserve time, that it can preserve the past. But I do think in a way it's an illusion. I mean, I think it's probably the most powerful tool of capturing and preserving and saving the past. If you think about your home movies or you think about the videos that you take now, that is a way of capturing time, of preserving time. But of course, at the end of the day, it's still an illusion because whatever you captured on film, whatever you captured in that video, no longer exists. It exists on the video, you know, it exists on the film, but physically, you know, it does not exist. You only have the impression of it. And so I think film always sort of becomes like memory in the end, that it still works like memory in that way, that you, the things in it are not real, you know, even though that's the way memory works. You remember these things. I remember conversations I had with my father. I remember summers at, at the lake, you know, that I used to go to, but I'm not really there anymore at that lake and my father's not in front of me and we're not having a conversation anymore. It's gone. It's vanished. And all we can do, I guess, is try to hold on to our memories and maybe recreate them through art as best we can sometimes, the way Wong Kar Wai does. And maybe that's what he's trying to do is to preserve this time, preserve these memories, even though it's still an illusion in a lot of ways. I just, I think film can kind of trick us into thinking it. Like, you know, I've been watching a lot of silent cinema, like I talked about earlier. I'm trying to bring this full circle. Um, But some of these films were a hundred years ago. The people in these films seem alive and young and there, but it's a hundred years now. They're gone. They're no longer alive. These films cannot save us. They cannot preserve us. You know, we are still mortals. We're still, um, we're still in the process of, of vanishing ourselves in a way. And, um, God, that's bleak when I say it that way, but we have these films, we have these images, but the people in them are no longer with us. So it really can't save anything or preserve anything. It's just this big illusion, but it's a beautiful illusion. And I think maybe it's why film for me is such a powerful medium for looking at memory and nostalgia. I mean, for me, I think it's one of the most powerful art forms for that to think about the past, to try to engage with the past and with memory. It's just really powerful in that way. I think, um, I mean, nothing quite evokes your memories like a home video, right? It just movement and these, these images, um, these moving images, they just are very powerful in our lives. So I love, I love that part of In the Mood for Love. Um, when I was doing my research and found out that 
a big part of it for Wong Kar Wai was recreating his childhood in the 1960s. That just resonated with me and it just struck a chord with me. Um, Because in my mind, I'm sort of always reliving the past. I'm always in the past. And I really have to force myself into the present and to stay conscious of the here and the now. But really, this is a love story for the ages. It's timeless. I do think this film is very timeless. I mean, it's 18 years later. And it's still a very powerful, um, effective film, you know. And what's interesting is that it captures 1960s Hong Kong. And it also captures 2000. Like, there's a style about it that's reminiscent of the 1990s, really. Um... So it actually sort of preserves both in a way. Sort of the style and aesthetic that Wong Kar Wai had at that time in his career. Um, Even as he's also trying to capture the 1960s. Because the thing about a lot of films um, set in the past is that they don't just have something to say about the past. They also have something to say. And they are influenced and affected by the time in which they are made. And that's an important part of period dramas, I think, is that they're also defined by the time in which they're made. And I think they have something to say about that as well, not just about the past. Um, But this is just a really beautiful love story about two people who can't be together. And um, of course, I'm drawn to love stories about people who can't be together. (laughs) I apologize. That's just kind of what I'm drawn to when it comes to romantic films and love stories. And I know that's terrible, but, um, yeah. But it's been really nice to revisit this film, to talk about it. Um, I hope that if you've not seen it, you will see it, or hopefully this episode inspired you to watch it. Um, and definitely I will try to watch more Wong Kar Wai when I have the time, but I'm so into French cinema right now and silent cinema and I got a lot to watch. My list gets longer and longer by the day, but, um, so I hope I did this film justice. I really tried. There's so much there. It's so much for me. It's about longing, desire, loneliness, disconnection, but also the, the possibilities of connection, the power of connection when Mrs. Chan and Mr. Chow do find each other really at a dark time in their lives when their spouses are cheating on them. Um, But it's also about how they can't be together, how they live in a society where them being together is wrong and illicit and could um, cause lots of gossip and, you know, things like that. And just like with Brief Encounter, they are moral beings. You know, they do have values. They do have principles. And it's important to Mrs. Chan that they don't cross that line and that they don't go there. But you do wonder, you know, when she's looking out that window and her eyes are tearing up, does she regret it? Does she wish that they had crossed the line? Does she wish that they had thrown caution to the wind and been together because there's a voiceover at one time in the film where she's asking if he has a ticket for her, maybe, if I'm remembering right. So this sense of maybe she was thinking about going to Singapore with him, of running away with him. And of course, as a viewer, you wish they had. You know, you wish they could have been together um, and loved one another. But it was important to her that they not cross that line. 
But I do wonder, and, and maybe those tears in her eyes are her regrets, are her thinking about what could have been or what she wished would have been. And so that's something to think about too, is, is those regrets about things that we don't do and the chances we don't take and the risks that we don't take. And maybe she's haunted by that. And maybe when he's speaking it into the stone, maybe he's haunted by that too, of what they didn't do. And who knows, maybe they will end up together. I don't, I guess in your mind, you could create another life for them where they meet. And um, there are definitely some deleted scenes on Filmstruck. Um, Wong Kar Wai actually wanted the film to go to 1972. But he kind of ran out of funds and he couldn't keep it going. And he realized that he needed to end it at some point. He needed to finish the film. So there's so much more to the story. I did not watch the deleted scenes. I want to talk about the film as it exists and as Wong Kar Wai edited it and chose for it to be. And in this film, they do not end up together. Now, there could be deleted scenes that show a different path or an alternative to that. But I try to engage with the film as it is. But I think deleted scenes are pretty interesting, you know. And to think about what could have been in a film, where a film could have gone. um, It's always interesting to think about. But a lot of that's on Filmstruck, so... There's a lot to explore with this film, but I just wanted to share my own personal connection to it, how much I love it, how much it's meant to me, and um, I'm really glad I could rewatch it and talk about it for the podcast for you. So thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now. <laughs>